Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. Today, I find myself thinking about cities. I recently moved out of a city, but that hasn't stopped my mind from occasionally wandering back to those streets that I used to wander down. Cities are full of stories. They are gathering places. They are, in a lot of ways, where all roads lead. And so today, I thought we would visit a handful of cities. One of them is a city of my heart. One of them is a city of my dreams. And the other has, for the last decade or so, been the city of my life. But we'll get to that. First up, strap in, buckle down. We're headed to Edinburgh. For our guide through Edinburgh, allow me to introduce Tendai Huchu, who publishes science fiction and fantasy under the name T.L. Huchu, and his debut novel, the Library of the Dead, the first book in the Edinburgh Knights series, is a rollicking roller coaster ride across Edinburgh following a young woman called Ropa Moyo. She's a ghost talker, making her living by reaching out to the spirits of the departed and passing on messages. But when a ghost asks her to find her missing son, she's pulled into a mystery that crosses the city, bringing in scientific magic, ghosts, naturally, villainous villains, and a few surprises that go bump in a slightly dystopic Edinburgh. The reason I said it in this particular Edinburgh that a lot of people have viewed as dystopian is because I wanted to fuck with the reader. What you actually have on the page is a third world Edinburgh. This is Edinburgh envisaged as a third world city. Now, if you go into the history of Scotland, and as the series progresses, there's a lot of Scottish history in it. If you go back to the 1700s, Scotland was the poorest nation in Western Europe, essentially a third world country. Before it joined the Union in 1707, the Union with England, Wales, well, now it's got Northern Ireland, but then I think it was the full island. Uh, of Ireland. And before that, Scotland was so poor. It was, in fact, a third world nation. And I'm showing you that the history has come full circle and Edinburgh is back to that place where it was a third world country. And you say, well, this is a weird thing. How does it happen? But if you think about, you know, your big third world cities that still function, they've got things that work and things that don't particularly work. And that's the vibe you get from this Edinburgh. So I'm always chuckling when people call it dystopian. But if you call Delhi or Harare or Lagos dystopian, then yeah, then this is what Edinburgh would look like. There's something very cool about the way that you craft a city that even if you haven't visited, people sort of have a sense of Edinburgh and of Scotland at this point. 
And you, there's, there's a moment pretty early on where Ropa talks about not wanting to go into downtown central Edinburgh. And it felt to me, I had this joy of getting to see a side of the city that I'd never seen before. Yeah, and, and that side of the city is part of your touristy, historic Edinburgh, like the center, which is sort of like got this Gothic, um, classical architecture. But when you think about it, back in the day, some of those historic places that you might have visited here, Drew, I mean, you certainly would have since you've been to Edinburgh. Those places were smelly, dirty, loads of poor people lived there until they built the new town. So Edinburgh is separated, the center of Edinburgh is separated into two areas. You've got the old town, which is kind of, I wouldn't say higgly-piggly, but it's very different from the nicely structured new town, which is across Princess Street Garden. So it's a city of two halves. And that's what I wanted to do, to take you back into that past, but in the future. What were you thinking about as you were sort of crafting those elements of the future while also sort of tying it into this utterly fantastical, absolutely delightful world of ghosts and magic and history? I think we see signs of this future to, today. I, I, we all have this sense that we live in a sort of fleeting present. And the past is something distinct from now. But the past still operates in this area. I, I think one of my inspirations when I was thinking of this kind of Edinburgh is actually from America. I remember seeing these scenes of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and thinking, Jesus Christ, what is going on, right? This is the world's wealthiest, most powerful nation. So what you see there is the sign that beneath this veneer, things could quickly flip. I mean, I draw from my own experiences of uh, being Zimbabwean, in which at one point it was one of the most successful, prosperous African nations. But within a space of about 20 years, you have something completely different, a much more impoverished nation with all sorts of problems. And so what I'm doing is surprising the reader by taking a city that they wouldn't associate with that and saying, well, you are very close to that. Things can tip at any moment. I mean, you're American. We've, we were all glued to what was going on with your last elections. And seeing that, I thought, well, there you go. Yeah, things really can tip very quickly. Exactly. And that's the Edinburgh that you have in which things have tipped over. But this Edinburgh now resembles the past, you know, what Edinburgh used to be. So the magic system actually invokes sort of like you know, thermodynamics, the laws of entropy. So you could say, in a sense, this is entropy at work. Oh, I love that. The, I, the magic system is so delightful. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about where it came from and how, how you play with it in the novel, because it, it defies expectations sort of each time a new element is introduced. So the magic system in the book is called scientific magic. And our narrator, Ropa, is still learning it. So in the first book, The Library of the Dead, we only catch a glimpse of it. Um, she is not a great practitioner of the magic. In fact, she herself practices a Zimbabwean form of magic that is not yet fully defined. But she's moving towards scientific magic, which is a Scottish thing. Now, this magic is derived from sort of like the Scottish Enlightenment. If you think of figures like James Clark Maxwell, Lord Kelvin, 
even the philosopher David Hume. So we're seeing a future in which the, even the magic system is derived from Scotland's advances sort of round about the time of the union till the present day. And the reason I decided to do this is because scientific magic is an oxymoron, right? And that should be pretty obvious to the reader. I love reading articles about soft magic systems and hard magic systems, because the reality is once you're doing magic, there is no soft or hard. <laughs> I thought I would fuck with the reader a bit, but this tension between magic and science is going to play out throughout the book. And we hopefully the reader is going to have to make a choice towards the end of the series, whether they actually believe in it and whether they actually think it works. Oh, that's so fun. And so you are, you're well into the planning of what comes next, I take it. I am. I, I've planned this series as a quintet. I have them planned out. That's correct. But I'm still getting surprises in between the text that shift the overall things. A good example is even this magic system. If you've read the book, you know it's based on the, science, the Scottish Enlightenment. Before I started, I didn't have this information at hand. It's only when I was scouting for locations within the city that linked me to these historical figures. That's how I shaped the magic. So there's a back and forth going on between me as the author and Edinburgh, the city, and on the other hand. The tricky thing for me is I have a story I want to tell, but the city keeps interfering. And it's trying to find that balance between the idea I'm trying to express and all these things that are coming along as I'm crafting the narrative. I really love that sentiment that the city keeps interfering. The idea of the city as a living, breathing thing of its own in some ways is so very present in the book. I, don't, I guess I just like thinking about it. I like thinking about our cities as, as more than just you know an amalgamation of buildings and streets. There is so much to be found deep inside the city. And I, really, I love the way that you, you build that out, even in this first book. And now I'm excited to be like, ooh, I, I do want to know where it's going. But it's so fun to know that you also are kind of in that place of like, ooh, where is this going? Exactly. I mean, cities like people are full of contradictions. We've spoken about the historic center of Edinburgh, what if you say the word Edinburgh, people associate with it. But I live on the outskirts on a fairly new council estate called Wester Hells, which is a pretty deprived part of the city. It's not what people would normally associate with Edinburgh. It's not the bit of the city that you find in postcards, right? Um, there is this wonderful sort of like formulation that um, China Mieville has in the city and the city. All these overlapping sort of like spatial, temporal, even cultural differences that exist within the same space. And ultimately, that's what gives a certain city its characteristics. So we associate New York with sort of like a hectic, but culturally dynamic and diverse place. Edinburgh has its own shelf of diversity and it has its own dynamism that I hope comes across within this novel. So what I want to do is to have Ropa cross through the city and show you different facets of the city that you normally otherwise might not see covered. And also to meet the kinds of people that you normally wouldn't associate with Edinburgh. The way that you do that too, particularly in the 
opening sequences of the book where she's literally crossing the city back and forth is such a a fun way. It's sort of like you're riding along with her as she's seeing all of these things. And I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about that genesis, like how how you bring the reader into the book. We're all fans of sort of like psychogeography, aren't we? Uh, There's a few really good novels that utilize that as a tool. And in a sense, this is what Ropa is doing. But instead of the gentleman Flaneau, what you have is a working lass who's earning a living, but she's very observant of the space in which she is in. And this is where you get sort of like, not necessarily attention, but in order to create this effect, I had to alter the city, right? If it is contemporary Edinburgh, as it is today, then probably Ropa would be using the fantastic transport network that we have. So in a sense, I had to destroy that, right? So it's not like I just thought, okay, let me just have this dystopian feel for the kicks. Uh, it's There's a reason for it. In order to show you the city, she has to walk through it or ride a bike through it. I myself went through that journey. I came to Edinburgh in 2005 as a student. And the Edinburgh that I know now as an older man is very different. When I was younger, it was all about the nightlife and all these hot spots where stuff was going on. As I became older and became a runner and took to walking, I started discovering certain aspects to the city that I hadn't seen before. These are the facets that you get from Ropa. So as the author, I'm still discovering Edinburgh. There's times I go out and just stumble into new locations that I didn't even know existed. And it's that sense of wonder that I want the reader to experience as well. One thing that I, I love it when authors do this, and I feel like it, it sometimes goes unnoticed in the midst of particularly fantasy and sci-fi novels where there's already so much invention. But there's a moment where you're talking about, uh, in this book, the new music craze of Yang Yang. And I could hear it in my head. The way that you described it, I was like, oh, I know what this is. Even though I can't hear this, I feel it. And I would just love to hear you talk about getting to invent like a piece of art, essentially, within the piece of art that you're already creating. I like that art within art, right? That's a lot of fun to do because what you want is this mix of the familiar with the unfamiliar. I remember this joy that I had uh, reading, we go back again to China Mievel's Embassy Town, different novel, which was about language. And there is this scene that he draws out where they're listening to language, but it sounds like a rock concert. It's supposed to give you that sense that there is something happening in the corner of your eye, that the world is slightly more weird than we know it to be. And it's a lot of fun inventing these new things, these new genres of music, etc. And hell, if I'm lucky, I, I think was it Don DeLillo in, in his book, was it White Noise? And he had this airborne toxic event and there's a rock group by the name Airborne Toxic Event. So I'm hoping. I really love the, the voice of the novel, which is, it is Ropa's voice, but it's also... It's also the city's voice, the magic voice, the way that that you are describing these things feels so vivid and so unique. I I can't think of another book that I've read that feels like it's written in this voice, which, for one thing, that's a testament to how awesome this book is. Thank you. 
but I would love I would love to hear you talk about creating that voice. Oh, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it's a fun novel. You know, I, I would love to tell you that it's like one of those deep, profound meditations on the human condition. <laughs> but when I write, I want it to be fun. Um, but voice is, you know it when you see it. For example, there's certain writers like Neil Gaiman. You, you, you can just hear that voice whenever you read his work. I take a slightly different approach in which I, I try as best I can to make my characters and my novels a little bit different. But Ropa is very, very distinctive. And, and that's because I was playing a little bit with language, right? So she hovers from a bit of Scots, which is people in Scotland would be very insulted if you said it's an English dialect. It's its own language, right? Ropa is embedded in the city, but she's also of Zimbabwean heritage. And so she's young. Young people use a lot of slang. And the slang that she uses is, you know, it's kind of international because there's, there's obviously that American influence uh, in the English language. But there's quite a lot of Scots in it, a lot of Scots slang. So what I wanted to do is have this tension within the language. Then you find her at the library. Now, most kids will code switch. And Ropa does a lot of code switching in her head and in her interactions with, you know, her peers or with adults that she, she meets in the novel. And so I wanted this tension to, you know, you have this slang, you have quite a bit of swearing, but you also have uh, sort of like meditating on science and all those other things, which requires her to use a different sort of like language. And I really wanted to have that tension for her to be frivolous at times sounding, but really smart. And I hope I've created a character who's smarter than than our author. And the vibrancy of, of the language and the rhythm and the tone of it is what expresses her personality, but it gives you the specificity of the location in which she lives. I think that was a lot of fun. And it's the sort of thing that you can't do in one take. You have to come back over and over and tweak certain things. And Initially, if, if I think about a novel like Harare North that was written by Brian Chikwala, which is this playful Zimbabwean pigeony sounding English, it was very difficult for me to get into it initially. But after a while, you know, when the rhythms and the tones get to you, you can understand it. And I say this having read Ivan Walsh's Trainspotting, which has a lot of Scots in it. And initially I, I, I couldn't understand it. But after a couple of chapters, you know, you get it and, and you roll with it. And that's the sort of like effect that I'm looking for. But again, because it's it's a third world Edinburgh that's both kind of like modern, slightly futuristic, but it harkens back to the old days and it's a third world Edinburgh. I wanted to have a character whose code switching kind of reminds you of like just what a complex place the world is, right? I don't think there's anyone who has one particular tone. The way you speak with your friends is very different to the way you might speak to your parents or figures of authority. And that's the sort of like vibe that I wanted to have in that this kind of like, I'm into contradictions. I'm into things that don't quite fit together. And that's what I wanted to have embedded in the language. And then you see that across the text in the world she's moving with, the characters she's interacting with, etc. Yeah. So I want to ask you the debut novel question, which is, 
what are you hoping comes from this? What are you? How are you hoping that the book lands in the world? As tricky, as a young writer, right? I used to believe I was this underappreciated genius. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like life teaches you a few lessons along the way. So, you know, it's it's a question of ego, right? We all create these things, and we say they're deeply personal, etc. But I think the only writer who was writing for himself at the time was probably Kafka, but even he couldn't destroy his own work, right? He handed it over to someone, and I still believe there's a part of him that wanted that work out there, right? But as a writer, you're not supposed to admit to that. You're just supposed to say, I do it for myself, I don't care about the readers, etc. And and it sounds cool. But I hope, like any work of art, that it will connect to its readers. Um, I'm at a stage in life where I understand that it's not for everyone, right? It's a particular genre. It's, it's, it's written in a particular style. But I hope that it finds it, its audience and those people connect deeply and meaningfully with it. And this is because I myself have read certain works that when I read them, they completely blew my mind and changed the way I saw the world. So I hope some kid out there has that feeling. And, and even if it's just the one kid who feels that way, then I think I've succeeded. Our next stop is Cairo, a city that I have never been to, but I have long dreamed of visiting, thanks in large part to the stories of P. Jelly Clark and his 1912 steampunk alternate history, Cairo. Fenderson Jelly Clark is an author of speculative fiction. He's won the Nebula Award, the Locus Award, been a finalist for the Hugo and the Sturgeon Awards. He most recently won the Nebula for his novella Ring Shout, and he's joining us today to talk about his debut novel, A Master of Jin, which returns us to the alternate history Cairo that he began in a short story called A Dead Jin in Cairo. We pick up again with Agent Fatma, his intrepid, Natalie-dressed hero, as she picks up a new partner, and as Cairo picks up a new villain. Al-Jahiz, the sorcerer who brought jinn and magic into the world, has reportedly come back to life. But what are his plans for Cairo? Yeah, I always tell people I'm not certain where the idea came from. Uh, I always say it has something, it, it must lie somewhere between a lot of Edward Said in grad school and having to uh, show students uh, as an adjunct um, professor, showing them uh, Ponte Corvo's The Battle for Algiers, because there's certainly this anti-colonial thread that runs through it. And so somewhere in there, uh, I think I just married that with, I, I think at the time I was reading a, probably a lot of steampunk. Um, I, I love adding, I love when there's magic, a little magic added to steampunk and put that all together in the pot and <laughs> I said Jin and Cairo uh, emerged. And um, who knew that it was going to lead to all this because I certainly didn't when I first started. So it, you've been kind of going along for the adventure along with us in a way. Yeah, and it's actually readers that have made the rest of this happen. When I, I wrote A Dead Gin in Cairo, uh, it was supposed to be a short story. It went long. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I would have nowhere to send it. And by random chance, I sent out, I think it might have been a tweet or how old this was. It might have been a Facebook post. <laughs> Who does that anymore? 
uh, asking, you know, hey, does anybody know where you could publish a story that's, you know, novelette length? It just so happened that an editor at, at Tor at the time, Diana Foe, took notice. And uh, the rest <laughs> the rest happened, to my surprise. So, um, yeah, when I first started this, I did not know there would be more. I, I, left, I left a lot of doors open for more, but th there was not a plan that other things would come. So I'm, I'm actually happy that I've been able to return to this world and do more in it. So then what was it like? What, what was the door that opened for you? I always love to ask kind of that, that craft question because I, I love nothing more than when a writer carves out their little space in the world and sort of keeps finding their way back to it. Because uh, I certainly, when I read a story like this, I, I want to go back to it. And it's always so thrilling when I get the chance to. Right. I think, I think after I wrote Adejin in Cairo, I think what really helped was the reception, uh, which, which blew me away, that people liked the story, really liked the story, and wanted to know if there was more. And I was like, well, not really. <laughs> you know, and I didn't know if I would return to it. In between that time... Um, uh, Torrid also published my story, Black, uh, The Black God's Drums, which is a completely different world. But, you know, I think the reception of it told me, look, I've got to return here. There's a lot more I could tell. And so I think it was sometime in the summer of 2017, I sat down. Uh, I was actually out of the country at the time. I was in Spain, of all places, in, in Granada, like visiting old Moorish uh, places in Granada. And I sat down one evening there and I just, I, I basically wrote the road, I wrote out the roadmap to the world that had mostly been in my head, right? So there was what I'd put down on the page and there were the little things in my head. And I, uh, thanks to a whole lot of Google Sheets opened up, I made a timeline basically of this world. And once I had that, I knew I could go further because there was just, there, there were just a lot more doors open. And I think like a month later, I think in between that time, once I did that, I started sketching out the idea for The Haunting of Tramcar 015, and I wrote it a month later. And so, yeah, and I didn't had no idea that story was coming. That was the wild card, like, two new characters. Okay. It, it, was, like I, it was like I made the world, and I need to take it out for a test spin. And that was the test spin. <laughs> and again, I was surprised at the reception. It's like, well, now I, I have to do something else, and it I guess it'll be the novel. I love that idea of a story as kind of the test drive. It makes me see this new book in a in an interesting light too, that idea that you were surprised by it because then when characters from Tramcar pop up in this book, it's like, <laughs> oh, hey, those guys. And yeah, there's a, you yeah. know, it's all coming together a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's a great feeling too. I remember when I was, when I was thinking like, because I've got it, it's all done. What am I going to do for a novel? And I was trying to, and I knew like, well, I've got to bring the tram car guys in. <laughs> Fatima makes a cameo in there, right? She was like my, that was like my thank you to folks who had read A Dead in Cairo, right? Like I wrote this other story, but I'm going to throw Fatma in there. And if you're paying attention, that's CT. <laughs> you know, if you catch on on who Abla is, that's, that's CT, uh, who's the waitress. And so I, I think, especially for a master of Jin, and look, anyone can jump in and start this book. They don't have to have read the others, right? It's a mm -hmm. great standalone book in that, in that sense. At the same time, I always try to give little gifts and Easter eggs for anyone who's read the prior works because, you know, they'll see my little <laughs> nods and winks here and there. I mean, there, there's a scene of the mention of the tram car in A Master of Jin that still makes me laugh when I wrote it, right? I mean, it's literally just made, it's made for anyone who's read those books. It's like, my, that's my thank you. Those are always my my thank you for reading those things and telling me you liked it. So I know that 
in your alter ego uh, to you as a writer, you are a historian and a teacher. Yeah. I'm just so fascinated in the way that this book is, is and all of your writing, actually, your other novellas, both um, The Black God's Drums and Ring Shout, they're so rooted in the realities of history. It, it feels like these stories exist in our world, right. except for the very obvious moments when they do not. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, you know, what was that push and pull like for you as both a writer and a historian, you know, to, to build the world that looks almost like ours, but then has a very meaningful divergence? Yeah, I think you've hit on it. I think that push and pull is the very nature of a counterfactual, right? Um, the, the counterfactual, the alternate history is always has to be rooted in something in our world. Because at the end of the day, this is my theory anyway, that all counterfactuals are actually about our world, right? Um, whatever counterfactual, whether it's the man in the high castle or what have you, by choosing to alter history the way you do, by choosing this point in history, Right. Mm -hmm. So you're bringing your own bias into that. And this is not a negative thing. This is bias in a simply your opinions and your thoughts and what interests you. You're bringing yourself into that and you, you are changing these things for a reason. And you want people to, in some ways, investigate that very history that you're changing more. Right. It's like by changing it, you're inviting people to look into the actual history. And so, yeah, I mean, and so if I'm writing a story that is, like I said, there's certainly anti-colonial, post-colonial themes mm -hmm. uh, running throughout. Uh, of course, I, I'm going, I'm writing it during a time period where I'm going to bring those things in there. And I'm going to, even when I give an alternate version of things, uh, there, there, I do this quite a lot. In fact, I'm pulling on our own history and subverting it and knowing that or thinking that uh, either by chance or on purpose, someone's probably going to stumble across that real history. <laughs> and, you know, they're going to be like, well, why did he choose to subvert this one thing? So that's how I, I look at it uh, whenever I'm doing this. As I always say, th there's no there's no one counterfactual that is more factual than the others. They're, they're all made up. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a matter of why did you choose to change that particular thing? And what is it you're trying to say by doing so? I love that word subversion mm -hmm. in, in the way that it slips by in a way that, you know, this reading this book is like reading the best 21st century version of an adventure novel. This yeah. it, it makes me think of the Edgar Rice Burroughs or the Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. the Indiana Jones books I read as a kid, but with so much more in a way that it pulls you in with sort of the swashbuckling, daring do. But then you find yourself, I found myself certainly doing that research and being like, oh, okay, so this is this has got to be different, but hang on. I mean, in this book, all of these world figures show up for a big old dinner party. Yeah. So what did these, what is what all these folks look like at this point right, in time? Yeah, yeah. And it, like, it was very they, cool yeah. to see that and to see how you were then playing with it and, and even playing against people's expectations in some ways. Exactly. The German chancellor, I don't want to give much away, mm -hmm. I, I really had fun playing with him as a character because his character is so different from the actual him. But I, I wanted to make him this this interesting, quirky and scary character sometimes, but also interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I, that it's funny that you mentioned that, that scene probably touches on more of 
things. I mean, I think there I was actually worried, like, don't get too deep into the history mm-hmm. from from the Ethiopian emperor onward who happened to be there. There's, there's just all kinds of things that deal with the history of that time period. And people who may be familiar with it, I wanted some of them to go, oh, I see what you're doing here. And yeah, again, I'm, you know, there's this, there's this theory in a sense that sometimes when there are gaps in the histories and silences, it actually makes it louder because people go looking. Ooh. Right. And then there's a way that in some of the ways where the subversion, it makes it louder because people want to know, did that really happen? Or that's such an odd change. What was the real history? And I'm, you know, I'm hoping that people look at that. And then when you see the story in full, again, it's a story at the end of the day, I, I want people, I'm a storyteller. I want people to have fun mm-hmm. with the story. It's interesting, but, you know, it, it is also supposed to be this critique of the colonial world and this thought of what could have been, right? And even in that what could have been, however, uh, it's not a utopia. It, it's still people dealing with each other and all the problems that might arise along with the supernatural. It's so often in many of these stories, we always say that, like, whether it's The Walking Dead or anything else, it's like, at the end of the day, it's the interaction among these people. And the supernatural just happens to be the other backdrop that's important, but the people are still having very interpersonal human relations. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because I, w- I was thinking a lot. And I, I wrote this note down several times in different iterations as I was reading that people want to believe in things. It was really making me think a lot about belief and there's now magic exists the gods exist these these things that to us even in the 21st century it's like whole what would happen if it feels utterly surreal and and right now you know i i want to believe in ghosts whereas this is a universe (laughs) where ghosts we know they exist and it was so interesting the way that characters even when given all of these new things where their belief has come true essentially they're still looking for something more to believe in. And I I found myself thinking about that in particular with the first Mm -hmm. almost two thirds of the book, really, where there is this this uncertainty, both on, on the part of our heroes and on the part of the reader about whether or not Al Jahiz has come back. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. seeing these people who are so hungry to believe in it. Yeah. I really I would just love to hear you talk more about that because it has stuck in my mind. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, and it, it's so it, it's really interesting what you're what you're saying there is sense that, you know, first of all, just my use of Jin. Right. Mm-hmm. In many parts of the world where uh, Jin are part of the uh popular cosmology. And by the way, this is, you can find jinn in many Islamic societies in the Middle East, in North Africa. You can find jinn in the Horn. You can find jinn as ideas among Christians, Mm -hmm. uh, whether those Christians are in Egypt or in the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia and elsewhere. And so there's a way that jinn themselves are part of the larger culture in in those places, in those regions. And in many of those regions, there are many people who Jin are not a part of folklore. They are part of life, right? They are a part of the natural, they're part of, if not the natural world and the supernatural world that is also part of our world. Part of this is that this is a modern Egypt, right? And so you have people in a modern world trying to struggle how to balance between these beliefs and what they believe modernity should be. And then Al-Jahiz comes and, you know, upends it all. Right. (laughs) Right. And pushes back against modernity, even while creating its own form of modernity. Right. And so there's this back and forth with that. And now it's no longer the jinn as hidden beings who people believe are 
maybe there and some can see them and some can't. Now everyone can. They are they are they are fully walking, corporeal, breathing beings and they are fitting into society. And and I think what is that like for human beings who even if we believe in more supernatural forces and spirits, we still think of this domain as mostly ours. So what happens when uh, we now have to share this domain in a much more upfront and much more physical way? And then you add in magic and these other things that may now upend ideas of science, right? And now bring back certain ideas, even of the ancient gods and what have you. And all of this is going on. And there's a way that what al does, while it's fantastic, it's also a bit traumatic, mm-hmm. right? The world has been upended in some ways. Or even if people said, well, I always believe in these things. Now it's been very affirmed. No longer <laughs> the question of do you and maybe and some can. It's everyone here. There's no doubt anymore. And how do you deal with this? And I think what you see here is this is a society that's struggling to deal with that, along with all of the other regular issues of modernity and what modernity means. And what does the modernity mean for a non-Western culture? Because modernity was happening everywhere at once, right? It wasn't right. as much as we think it was just the Occident, quote unquote, it was happening everywhere. And so these are the issues that they have to deal with along with all of this. And as you see, even the Occidental cultures, they don't know what to think. Some want to embrace this magic, some want to deny and ignore it, but it, it's, it can't be. And so there's a way that what al did was, again, he changes the world, but change can sometimes bring its own reverberations and trauma. And this is a world that's kind of, it's kind of reeling with it. And it's why I think in Cairo, he's a figure that is at times inspires awe, also fear, and also, you know, at times dislike. It, it runs the gamut of how he's perceived. It's so marvelous. I keep I keep thinking of words like wonder and marvel, and and they're certainly purposefully layered into this book. The the ways in which characters, or even characters observing the the other, you know, the NPCs around them, everybody has these moments of, even even if it is difficult, like you're saying, they 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 have these moments of just like wow, and there's something really beautiful in that, or awesome in sort of like the old school way of thinking about awesome and awful that idea of awe as i don't know something that certainly in in our present feels like we sometimes don't have as much awe as maybe we would like right yeah and looking at these characters who are just surrounded by it and kind of taking a moment to acknowledge it even if you know they're in the middle of a motorbike chase or <laughs> talking to somebody yeah. who's turning into a crocodile <laughs> Yeah. No, I think you're hitting at an important point here. I mean, part of this is that these changes are are evolutionary, just like anything else. So there's always something they haven't seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So even for someone like Fatma, who thinks she's she's seen a lot, she's seen more than most. You know, that's part of what the ministry does. The ministry is kind of how people have decided to kind of outsource having to deal with this world. They'll, they'll deal with the one or two jins they know. They don't want to know too much more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they know what they know and they're dealing with this, but they they and they're thankful because it's made, you know, Egypt this power, but they don't want to know everything. And that's the ministry's job. And even Fatima, who's seen a lot, there's still more out there that my, as you say, marvel her. And I, and I think I tried to capture this even in the dead Jin in Cairo with my, you know, allusions to, for instance, the cosmic horror, right? Mm-hmm. That whatever you think, whatever they think they know, there's, there's always more. Right. <laughs> right. There's, there's more beyond their understanding, you know, and that's why you have 
beings like the angels who are just enigmatic, like you don't know, you can't decipher them and their motives and what they are exactly. And I've, I've always loved that within any type of speculative fiction I read. I've always loved the notion of there is something bigger and more mysterious and hard to comprehend, <laughs> even for our heroes. And there, there's always just a bit more. Since you've brought up cosmic horror, I would be remiss not to quickly ask you a question that I guess focuses a little bit more on Ring Shout, but really it does, it ties into Master of Jin and like you were saying, the angels. But in Ring Shout, there's, there's some real heavy horror in that. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I, I love, it just, it thrilled me and it, it thrilled me sort of like you're talking about this idea of these things that are, that are bigger. There's always something bigger, always something more unknowable. And making that, taking that and turning it into like page turning, oh God, I'm looking through my fingers because I'm so scared, but also so thrilled and I, I need to see how it ends. I would love to hear you just kind of talk about writing that and doing that. It, it's such an amazing feat that you pull off across decades of time and, and different universes, but it feels like I'm starting to see the tools in your toolbox in a very cool way as a reader. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think it's funny. Um, I think one, there was a, I forget who it was, a tour had just finished Ring Shout. And then after that, they read A Master of Jin. They were like, these are two completely different books. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like just two complete, the theme and everything. And I said, that, well, they were. And in fact, there was a time when A Master of Jin was actually completed before Ring Shout was written. Oh, wow. And, you know, I remember I had to do edits and I said, I can't edit a Master of Jin right now until I finish editing Ring Shout mm -hmm. because the two can't bleed into each other. <laughs> they are, even though both of them to me deal with weighty topics, they simply deal with them in different ways. Mm -hmm. right? There's a different atmosphere. There's a different feel I was going for um, in Ring Shout that I don't think would have worked if I had done Ring Shout the way I did Master of Jin or if I did Master of Jin the way I did Ring Shout, right? They're just... They're just two different works. The characters themselves are different. The themes are, are very different. You know, but I think if there's a similarity for both, I think if, if it's one thing you can say in my toolbox, it is I've always had an interest in how modern storytellers, whether it's in horror or whether it's modern fantasy or urban fantasy, I've always been fascinated how they pull from the large diversity of popular human folklore, cosmology, religion, and what have you, and how they find ways to reinterpret these things through some of the quote-unquote tropes, that word nobody likes to use, but we all use them, through some of the tropes uh, that we see common. So, you know, for instance, in Ring Shout, the Night Doctors, you know, come from uh, popular African-American folklore. But I, I knew the popular folklore, but I was thinking, well, I can understand how this popular folklore might have frightened someone when they heard it back in the day, but what would what would frighten me today, right? Mm. How could I think about this today in a way that would frighten me that uses these tropes of like cosmic horror of beings that are beyond us and so forth? And so, you know, that's where I, I wanted to take that. As soon as I heard the story, I said, yeah, this is, this is how I want to interpret the Night Doctors. And somebody may interpret them completely differently, right? Maybe even more closer to, to the traditional folklore, but... I thought that this was a way to explore the existential threat, right? Yeah. Of beings that seem beyond you. And I, you know, that's my metaphor for so many issues of race, power, and all those kinds of things uh, within, within Ring Shout. And so I, I like that exploration. And I think if you were to say on the flip side, um, 
in Master of Jin, I play as well with the angel or the beings who call themselves angels. <laughs> right? uh, and I mean, I've, I've just always, I've always been a fan of angels to go bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always, and I think it's because of how in, especially in Western culture, how we are taught to think of angels, right? So when you think of one going bad, that itself is scary. Yeah. Right? That's, that's a, a being of great power who bad is not supposed to be part of their uh, <laughs> part of their resume, right? But going bad, what does that mean, right? I've just always liked this notion of angels to go bad and their logic is always impeccable, right? Right. They always figure they're doing they're doing good. And there's something about a being who thinks that they are so correct and so righteous that they can do terrible things, but tell you, no, no, it's it's good what I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah, because I am inherently good and I cannot be bad. And I think there's there's something in that that is frightening because, you know, you, you can't reason with that. You can't possibly make it see another way because it is certain that what it's doing is right. And I think there's something about that that probably frightens us because we think of humanity like that. Right. Right. Humans who have done horrible, monstrous things, whether on the individual or state level or what have you. And if you went and asked them, what would simply be unfathomable to you is that they could explain it so perfectly. Yeah. And there's something about that I think that sends, should send a chill down anyone's spine. And that's the kind of fear I sometimes I was going with, especially for uh, the angels. But again, but but not but not not in a way that completely freaks me, weirds people out. <laughs> because it's not that kind of book. But yeah, but you know that that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of when I thought of. It. I had I had chills running down my spine as we were having this conversation. Just thinking about it, it is, it's just a never endingly spooky concept. Yeah, yeah. I am fascinated by cities and by the way that cities are represented on the page in fiction, particularly. Uh, when they feel so vivid, which particularly your Cairo does. And I'm just curious to know how you did it. What did you do research? Did you go? What was your, how did you create your Cairo? Oh, I think a lot of research. I, I, I visited Cairo before, um, but you know, I, as I, as I say this all the time, uh, with any place, a visitor, a visitor is not a person who lives there, mm -hmm. but Cairo leaves its impression on you. Certainly. And so I was inspired by that simply by my experience and thinking of and like bits of my experiences and things I perceive that I jot down notes on and journals, what have you, are, you know, littered throughout these stories. But really, it took a lot of it was a lot of just research. Uh, and thank goodness we live in an era with Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank goodness we live in an era where I could look up old maps. Yeah. That they were accessible digitally online. Thank goodness for one of the reasons I chose it. It's Cairo. Cairo is this, it's a modern city. It's an old city. It's an ancient city. It's just teeming with history, right? It's, te it's, just, it's just full of history that is continuing. And so I, I remember when I was, I had hoped I could go back and visit. I thought I'd be great, you know, walk the streets. And I just could not, I just didn't have the chance to do so. To go back and more recently while I'm writing these stories, but, you know, I was, I was able to do a lot of research that way through a lot of, you know, just physical research, a lot of it digital, and then getting the extra touch by having uh, sensitivity readers from people who were from Cairo, you know, who might say, like, I know you probably picked this up from here. This is what people eat for breakfast, but no one really eats that for breakfast anymore. Let me tell you what people would actually eat or let me, you know, and that was really helpful. Or this is a phrase you might hear from uh 
from Alexandria. You put a phrase in here, but really only people from Alexandria say that. So, you know, and that was immeasurably helpful. I know. And oh, I forgot the other thing I used. You know, I think I read, I think over the years I've read like a few, you know, Egyptian novels, and many of them based in Cairo. So by actual Egyptians, you know, Egyptian writers. So that also was helpful in just getting that understanding and feel for the play. <laughs> and it was always interesting when my sensitivity readers would be like, yeah, I think that writer put that in there for somebody in the West because we don't do that. <laughs> and so I'd have to make that juggle between, okay, I'm, I'm getting this thought here, but I know I've read this several times in this work, but right. you know, I'll have to make my decision on what I go with. And I hope somewhere at, at a, in a coffee shop in Cairo, if anyone is, if I'm so if I'm if I'm so lucky that anyone there reads the book, they will also be arguing over. Our last stop today is New York City. New York is full of stories. We read them all the time, maybe sometimes too often, but it's not just the novels and the TV shows, but the stories of the city itself that you find by walking around. One master raconteur of the city is a man named Kamal Ware. He's an artist, a writer, a storyteller, and the founder of the Black Gotham Experience, an immersive multimedia project that celebrates the impact of the African diaspora on New York City. Kamal is a walker and a talker, and he knows the stories of New York City better than just about anybody else I've ever met, and he's one of the most entertaining storytellers I've ever met. So I asked him for some thoughts about storytelling, about cities, about genre, and this is what he had to say. Yeah, I mean, well, story, storytelling is, is also wayfinding, you know? If you pick up a book, there's a reason why you picked it up, you know what I mean? It might be the cover, it could be the author, but you're constantly using literacy in one form or another, to turn some kind of proverbial page. And so when you walk into a neighborhood, that can be like a whole section of like the library, so to speak. Certain spaces have certain kind of energy and you find your way by like your cues, you know? Is that the kind of bar I want to go into? What's the menu? Who recommended it? Let me go to my phone and read the reviews. All that is reading. You're pretty much in a book. And so storytelling is like a, a matter of wayfinding and you're always the protagonist. Sometimes you have other characters along the way that storytelling in many respects is just a matter of navigating any space. You know, if you want to get nerdy, why is this street named this way? Or you want to get like, you know, psycho, spiritual and meta, you might want to know what happened in these corners that I'm walking through. You know, what happened above and beyond what the public square tells me is important beyond the statues, beyond the buildings or the names of streets, what else took place with here? Who was here? And so in many respects, I look at, you know, walking as like my preferred method of meditating, learning, because I get a chance to like write my own story. I feel like bipedalism is like my pen. And so to like move about a space and just be curious is me just like imbibing on what has been written by others while I'm also getting a chance to like, you know, nestle my pen right up in there too and create my own experience. Well, that's enough of a voyage for this week. The next time you're in your nearest city, take a book, go for a walk, see what happens. This has been Tor Presents Voyage into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Anchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. 
Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>